Well, good morning. I'm sure you're wondering what these little pieces of paper are for. They weren't to save a seat or there would no be seats available, but we'll get to that in just a moment, so hang on to that. Well, it's good to be able to bring the message to you this morning. Um, sometimes it's hard to figure out what I feel God wanting us to hear in times like this because we're not in the middle of a series or a theme or a season of the year. We're not in a particular passage or even a particular book in the Bible. So you think about it, I've got 66 books in the Bible to draw some great content from. And there's a lot of great things that we can when hear this morning, even if it's something that we've heard again, it's fine that we can hear it again and again and again because I don't know about you, but I've got this long-term memory issue, I tend to forget things. I thought about the scriptures that I memorized last summer in the Summer Scripture Memory Challenge, the 13 passages that we memorized. I thought about those last week. How good can I remember those? And I didn't do as good as I was hoping I would. So we tend to forget things. And um, I thought it would be great. Wouldn't it be great if we could just remember everything that we've ever learned before? Anytime we've ever studied a book in the Bible, we remember everything we've ever studied about in that book. That would be great. Wouldn't it be great to be able to recall all those messages that at one point had really given us guidance in life? Wouldn't it be able to just recall those, those points and messages right when we need them? That would be wonderful. But that's not the way you and I are designed. And part of that is I think that we, we come to hear a message and then we know that we can just come back again the next week and hear another message and come back the next week and hear another message. We don't really take the time to soak in and, and really think and chew on what we have just heard. My wife and I were at a Brazilian restaurant a couple weeks ago with some friends, and uh, there was these guys who would carry big skewers of meat around, and they were ready to slice you off some uh, whenever you wanted it. And it was all sorts of meat, prime rib, chicken, steak, chicken and steak wrapped in bacon. I mean, meat around meat. Who doesn't like that kind of stuff, right? Sausages, lamb, you name it. They were bringing it around to you. And they would give you this coaster, and one side was green, the other side was red. And anytime your coaster was green, they would just keep coming by. You want some of this? You want some of that? And you're like, yeah, 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 yeah. Keep following on. Eventually, you had to turn your coaster over to red so that you could actually eat what was on your plate. And sometimes I think that's the way we need to be. Maybe we need to step back. We just need to take the time to chew what it is that we've just heard. But then I also know that the average attendance of a family unit is less than twice a month. So I'm not going to encourage that. Actually, sometimes we need to add some more calories and carbs to our spiritual life. But I began to think, what would it be like if today's message is the last message that you would hear for a long time? For some reason, maybe we couldn't get together. Lord forbid something happened to you where this was the last message that you would hear for a long time. What would it be like if you didn't have access to the Bible anytime you wanted, whether it was on your phone or your computer, or you just go to the bookshelf, there it is. What if you didn't have access to the Bible? What if going to life group really was your key source of finding truth about God for your life? I would hope that maybe we would begin to take more and better notes. We would use the bulletins on the back and take notes. We would take those notes and we would read through them throughout the week and we would find ways that this truth can apply to our life. Maybe we would find a friend and we'd say, hey, let's share notes. I was taking some notes, but I think I missed something. What do you got? Let's talk about this. Because that's what the early church was like. They didn't have access to the Bible like we have. 
Most of the letters and books, they weren't even written yet. And the ones that were written, they were being passed around from church to church because they wanted to learn God's word too. They wanted to know exactly what Jesus had taught. What did Jesus really say? There was people who were saying all sorts of weird things in those days. And there's people still saying all sorts of weird things today. And we have God's word. But the church was hungry for the real and honest truth. So there's a couple letters in the New Testament, First and Second Timothy. They were written to this particular young pastor, and since I'm a young pastor at the age of 39, I thought that would be a great place to find some content this morning. So First and Second Timothy were written to this specific person. It wasn't written to a church necessarily like we see in Corinthians, Ephesians, Colossians, a lot of other books. It was written to a specific person. But this letter, this private message, was also going to be read throughout the churches. Imagine that. A letter, a private letter that you wrote or a private letter that you received, a private email, was going to be read aloud in church. Any volunteers? Well, Paul kind of assumed that this was going to happen. Because in 1 Timothy chapter 6, at the end of it, he says, Grace be with all of you. So even though he was writing to Timothy, he knew that the church, the larger audience, was going to read this book. And another reason we know that it was read throughout the churches is because it's in our Bible. And one of the requirements to be in this collection of books and letters is that it had to be widely respected and widely used within the early church. So a private message to Timothy, but it was used within the church. Now Paul was writing to Timothy to tell him that as a young pastor, there are some things that you should do. There are some things that you needed to communicate. And knowing that the church was going to read this, it was a reinforcement that this is exactly what Timothy should be doing, and this is exactly what you as a church should be hearing. There are some well-known truths within Timothy, such as in 1 Timothy chapter 1, it tells us that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. It was a truth right up front in the letter. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. We are sinners in need of a Savior You need to continue to preach and teach the good news of Jesus Christ. If a church is not regularly sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, you as a member, you as an intender, need to think about talking to the leadership or talking about maybe this isn't the right church for you. We need to preach and teach that Jesus Christ was God and man who died on the cross to save the world from their sins. 1 Timothy chapter 2 tells us that men in all places, places should pray with holy lifted hands. Men should be leaders in worship, worshiping. We should be great examples in leading spiritual lives within our home and within the church. 1 Timothy chapter 3 gives us job descriptions for elders, pastors, and deacons, those same descriptions we use to this day. 1 Timothy chapter 4 encourages Timothy not to let people look down on him because of his young age. He needed to set a high example for people to follow. 1 Timothy chapter 5 tells us how we can discuss who in the church should be receiving benevolences and that we also should be giving the pastor a decent wage because he works hard in preaching and teaching God's word. He also shares that Timothy needed to drink a little bit of wine more than water because of this chronic illness. So I'm not sure Timothy was too happy that Paul disclosed to the church-wide body his medical issues, but Timothy, uh, Paul did that. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, he teaches us that we need to preach correct doctrine, and there are some things that we can say to those who are rich. And that's where we're going to spend some time here this morning. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 
If you're using the Bibles in the chairs in front of you, this is on page 1010, 1010. We won't read the whole chapter, but we will read most of it. 1 Timothy chapter 6, we'll begin in verse 3, or really the end of verse 2. Teach and encourage these things. If anyone teaches other doctrine and does not agree with the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the teaching that promotes godliness, he is conceited, understanding nothing, but having a sick interest in disputes and arguments over words. From these come envy, quarreling, slanders, evil suspicions, and constant disagreement among men whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth, who imagine that godliness is a way to material gain. But godliness... With contentment is a great gain, but godliness with contentment is a great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pains. He's not saying there's anything wrong with riches or having things. He's saying if you want to be rich, this craving of it, this love for the money, that's the problem. Now you, man of God, run from these things, but pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight for the faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called, and have a good confession before many witnesses. We're going to jump down to verse 17. Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the age to come so that they may take hold of life that is real. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Avoid irreverent, empty speech and contradictions from the knowledge that falsely bears that name. By professing it, some people have deviated from the faith. Grace be with all of you. Now, I usually want to try to give you one main truth so that you can walk away feeling that you can actually chew on something. And some of that is because I see myself as a simple-minded person uh, I can digest just a few bits of information at a time. Well, this morning, I'm going to kind of double your plate. I'm going to give you kind of two main thoughts, and that's mostly because I just really couldn't decide on which route to take. So I promise you it won't be twice as long, but it will have two main points. So the first thought that really jumped out at me where we're going to spend really the whole time in First Timothy chapter 6 is verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is a great gain. What does that actually mean? What is godliness with contentment? Well, godliness I'm defining as a set standard of beliefs about God and a set of behaviors according to those beliefs. I'm going to say that again because I know you're taking notes, even though somehow you're looking at me and being able to take notes. But godliness is a set standard of beliefs about God. What do you believe about God? and a set of behaviors according to those beliefs. You believe something about God, what are you doing about that belief? That's godliness, all right? Contentment is being sufficiently supplied and satisfied with one's circumstances. Contentment is sufficiently supplied and satisfied 
with one's circumstances. Those two together get us gain. What's gain? You all know what gain is. That's, that's what we want. We want more. We want better. We want better business. We want better friends. We want more friends. Some of us would be willing just to take one friend. We want, we want more and better. We don't like the word loss, unless it talks about weight loss. But we don't like the word loss. We want the word gain. Give me more, more, more. We like gain. And Paul's saying, if you want gain in life, if you want the real life, if you want gain in your spiritual life, then it's godliness with contentment. All right, so what is this godliness with contentment? Is, is Paul saying that I need to be content with my level of godliness? Is he saying, you know, if you would just stop trying to beat up on yourself to try to be a better person, if you would stop trying to be a perfect follower of Jesus Christ and, and just embrace your new level of forgiveness, your new Christian liberty, then you would have this contentment with godliness. You know, wouldn't it be better that you just didn't read God's word if you didn't go to church, if you didn't hear of things about how you needed to change your life? Wouldn't life be grand? That's not what Paul's saying. He's not saying we need to be content in our level of godliness. The Bible is very clear about that, that we need to work out our salvation with trembling. We need to train ourselves in the area of godliness. So I believe godliness and with contention is not one thing together. It's two things. In one hand, you hold godliness. In the other hand, you hold contentment. One hand, you hold godliness. One hand, you hold contentment. It's like Pastor Neil. He preached a series in October called Key Choices to a Great Life out of 1 John. And John said, I'm writing you these things so that you would have complete joy. After we heard that message, we walked away, we got complete joy, right? No. Why is it so hard for us to find that pure joy? Why is it so hard for us as Christians to find contentment? Why is it that Christians sometimes are the most miserable people around? Why is that? Well, because I know it's tough because when you walk in your house, all the lights are on, right? Why, why is it happening? I could find contentment if someone would just turn the light off after they leave a room. You walk in the room, you say, hello? No one's there. Why is the light on? If they would take the energy to flip the light on, they could take the same energy to turn the light off, right? Life would be easier to find contentment if we didn't open the dishwasher and find a bowl face up with someone's frosted flakes stuck to it. Life would be easier if we didn't have a baby that would throw food on the floor. You worked hard to make that. Why'd they do that? Life would be easier if the person in front of you driving would use their turning signal. What drives me even bonkers is they use their turning signal halfway into the turn. What's the point of that? We already know you're turning. You see how easy it is for us to build up this discontentment? It's easy for us to complain rather than finding a reason to rejoice. It's so easy for us to complain rather than finding a reason to rejoice. And that's where your piece of paper comes in. I want to challenge you to take a piece of paper, and you're probably going to have to cut up a lot of pieces of paper. I'm going to need a lot of pieces of paper. And I want you to, any time you complain this week, you're going to write it down on a piece of paper. All right? As soon as you complain, whether it's legitimate or not, you're going to write it down on a piece of paper, and you're going to stick it in your pocket. I, I don't want you to go home and say, I'll do this later. Because what you do is you'll forget all the times you complain or you say, ah, that wasn't that big of a deal. I'm not going to write that down. I'm only going to write the big ones down. No, I want you to write every time. 
and you're going to stick it in your pocket. And the next day, you're going to take those and you're going to put it in your other pants. And eventually, you're going to have a big pile of papers, probably, all right? The whole point is this. I want us to be aware of how many times we really complain. And we may say, ah, it's not that big of a deal. You know, I, I don't need to do that. I want you to think about a drop of water, that drip, 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 drip. A drop of water can bore a hole into a rock. And maybe one of the reasons that we can't find joy, we can't find contentment, is because we have dug this humongous hole of complaining that's hard for us to get out. That's where we live, in this hole of complaining. That's why I challenge you. How many times do you complain? Maybe part of the reasons that we can't find contentment is because we're looking for joy in all the wrong places. King David in Psalm chapter 4, verse 7 said, You, God, have put more joy in my heart than they when their new grain and new wine abound. You, God, have put more joy into my heart. How many of us can really say, Yes, I understand that in and through God I have found joy? Most of us are trying to find joy in all the wrong places. His son Solomon. He decided to take this venture and to find out what was good in life, all the pleasures in life, and not restrict him to, to any of these things so that he could find what's good on this earth for humans. And he, he journals this, this journey of his in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a great book. It's really one of my favorite books in all of the Bible. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, Solomon says this, I explored with my mind how to let my body enjoy life with wine and how to grasp folly. My mind is still guiding me with wisdom until I could see what is good for people to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. Here's what he did. I increased my achievements. I built houses, and I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself and planted every kind of fruit tree in them. I constructed reservoirs of water for myself to which to irrigate the grove of flourishing trees. I acquired male and female servants and had slaves who were born in my house. I also owned many herds of cattle and flocks, more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. I amassed gold and silver for myself and treasures of kings and provinces. I gathered male and female singers for myself and many concubines, the delights of men. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also remained in me. All that my eyes desired, I did not deny them. I did not refuse myself any pleasure. For I took pleasure in all of my struggles. This was re my reward for all my struggles. Even if I was having a bad day, I would reward myself with more and more pleasures. When I considered all that I had accomplished and what I had labored to achieve, I found everything to be futile and a pursuit of the wind. There is nothing to be gained under the sun. Solomon is saying, as much as I was reaching for contentment and finding that joy, I'm reaching out, trying to grab it like the wind. I think I've got it. Then I realize I don't have it. I'm trying to search and grab for more and more, but it's not worth it. And that's what you and I are doing. We're trying to grab for the things that it's empty. And Paul and David and Solomon and John, the writers of the Bible, are saying, you can't find joy. You can't find contentment apart from God. You're not going to find it in wealth. You won't find it in health. You can't find it in relationships. You can't find it in sex. You're not going to find it in some type of substitute. The only way you're going to find contentment, the only way you're going to find joy is in godliness. So we're still in this godliness or this content, contentment idea. Being sufficiently supplied and satisfied with our own circumstances. And I know some of you are saying, if I was sufficiently supplied, 
then I would be satisfied in my circumstances, right? If I was sufficiently supplied, I could be satisfied in my circumstances. That's the problem. But really, when is enough enough? When do you know that you've had enough to be sat sufficiently satisfied? I mean, you think about it. Do you want to buy a home? You've got this family, and you want to put them in a, an area where they're going to go to a good school, and so that kind of locks you in. You want some key features in a home that you're looking for, so you've got a price that you, you need to, for this home. Not only do that, you need taxes and insurance. Then you need money set aside to pay for the leaky pipes and all the repairs that are going to happen. You need money to pay for the heating and the electricity and all that stuff. You need money for food. And the more kids you have, the more food you need. Even though I fed them yesterday, they want food today. You know, you need all of this money. And then you realize, if I need all of this, then I'm going to have to get a better job. So you go and you get that better job. And now you need fancier clothes. And you buy a nicer car because now you represent this new position. And you want to close the next deal. And the nicer car you have, the more money it costs to repair those things. And so on and so on, right? You see? Enough. Where is enough? Well, it's really different for all of us, and I'm not trying to set a, a goal or a line, a bar that we need to reach. It's really different for all of us. That's a question between you and God. And the question is, are, are there some things in your budget that can be better served to expand God's kingdom? There are certainly things in my budget that could be better served in God's kingdom. Are there some things that we need to be content with less? Paul says to Timothy that if you have food and clothing, that would be enough. Someone once heard, I heard someone say that you really only need one pair of pants because how many pair of pants can you wear at one time? You can only wear one. So you only need one. I'm not saying we should go out and sell everything we have. I'm just saying to think about how we use our money. Is God's kingdom being sufficiently supplied? Are we helping to expand God's kingdom? The more that we give, the more that we receive. And sometimes that's in material possession. Most of the time that's in eternal blessings. Remember, God knows what brings us joy. It's, all, it's not always going to be material gain because he wants us to give us better things, the things that actually bring us joy. So he's going to give us eternal blessings. God gives us stuff so we can be good stewards to take care of ourselves, to take care of our families, but also to give back to him so we can expand his kingdom, godliness. That was contentment. So godliness. Godliness, as I said, was a set standard of beliefs about God and a set of behaviors according to those beliefs. Paul encourages Timothy to teach sound doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ. He tells him to guard those things that were entrusted to him. And in verse 12, he says, fight the good fight for the faith. Fight. Well, we know what fighting is. We fight about all sorts of things. We fight because we want something and we didn't get it. We feel like we deserve it or we're not happy the way things are happening. So that's why we fight. That's the discontentment part. That's why we fight because we want something. We're not getting it. We feel like we deserve it or we don't like the way it's happening. You can fight with your spouse, maybe about the area of intimacy. You have one view of intimacy. They have another view of intimacy. You feel like you're not getting intimacy or you don't like the way intimacy happening, and you fight. Maybe you and your parents are fighting. You want this level of independence and freedom, but you feel like you're not getting that level of independence or freedom, or you don't like how they're 
giving you that independence and freedom. And so you fight. You fight at work because you want more money. You feel like you deserve more money, and you're not getting that. Or you don't like the way the company is spending their money. You fight. You're discontent. That's fighting. We know what that is. And Paul's saying there's some things in your life that you're discontent that you need to be content about. And then that same emotion and attitude should be carried over here where there's areas in your life where you're content and you need to be discontent about those things. And that's where we get mixed up. We're discontent about areas where we need to be content. And we're content in areas where we need to be discontent. Well, it depends on, it really matters what we believe because it drives our actions. There's a group of Christians, they call themselves Christians, they call themselves Baptists. No Baptist group even wants to be associated with these people because they protest at people's funerals. They protest at people's funerals who they feel like led an ungodly and supported ungodly lifestyle. I think that portrays the wrong image of God. There's people in Worcester who wear black and they carry around a sickle and they stand out in front of parent, Planned Parenthood, symbolizing death. I think that conveys a wrong image of God. I think that conveys the wrong message. But you have to admit, they believe something and they're passionate about their belief. A lot of us, we're very casual, we're very relaxed about what we believe. Paul's saying, be discontent. Fight for some of this stuff. Have some passion. Be discontent about some areas. There should be areas and issues in our life that disturb us, that get us irritated, that get us annoyed. What are some of those beliefs? I think one of the beliefs that we need to have a strong belief about is in the area of sin and hell. I just said two naughty church words. Sin and hell. Well, only 60% of Americans believe that hell is a real place. And 40% of people, only 40% believe that Satan is real. Most people believe hell is only reserved for those really, really bad people. Society is the one who kind of creates what's good and what's bad, and they change from generation to generation. We need to know, what does God have to say about sin? What does Jesus have to say about sin and hell? Well, Jesus tells this parable in Luke chapter 16. It's really a horrifying uh, parable, and I wish we had more time to spend here, but I just want to read through some of it, and I want you to understand how Jesus is describing this place he calls Hades, we call hell. It's called Sheol in the Old Testament, this idea of the grave. In Luke chapter 16, in verse 23, the, the parable is kind of jumping in the middle of it, but it said, and being in torment in Hades, and being in torment in Hades, he, it's this rich man, he looks up, he's in Hades, um, we could talk about why he's there. It's not because he has money, and, and then it's comparing this rich man versus this poor guy, but that's not the point of the, the story. This rich man, he looked up, and he saw Abraham a long way off. Abraham in the Old Testament is this father of faith. He obeyed God because God said, I want you to sacrifice your son. He obeyed God, and he was going to sacrifice his son, but he had faith that God was going to provide an alternative sacrifice. So because he was obedient and because by faith he believed that God was going to provide an alternative sacrifice, righteousness was accounted to his account, was credited to his account. And so he becomes this father of faith. He's the symbol of someone who got it, who's in heaven. So this guy, tormented in Hades, looks up, see Abraham a long way off with Lazarus by his side, and he cries out, Father Abraham, 
Have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this flame. Son, Abraham said, remember that during your life you received your good things just as Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here while you are in agony. Besides all this, a great chasm has been fixed between us and you so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot and Neither can those from there cross over to us. Father, he said, then I beg you to send him to my father's house because I have five brothers to warn them so they won't come also to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. But he told them, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Jesus saying hell is a real place. It's not a place we want to joke around about. There's this song on the radio. It's called Stand By You, and you may have heard it. Part of the lyrics goes, even if we can't find heaven, I'll walk through hell with you. Now, the idea of the, the, the song is that I'm going to stick by your side during the hard times in life, and that's great. But they're saying, even if we can't find heaven, I'm okay if I walk through hell with you. Hell is not a place where we want to joke around about. It's a place where we want to avoid. We don't want to go there, and we don't want to be there with our friends. It's not going to be a party. So we need to take serious this idea of what hell is and what sin is. Jesus preached and taught, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We love Jesus about how he heals the sick and restores sight to the blind. But he said, I have come to preach repentance because he knew what the alternative was. He loved sinners. He loved hanging around them because he wanted to save them from where they were going. So I think we need to be honest about what God has to say about sin and hell, and even heaven too. There's another doctrine that I think we need to understand who Jesus is, that he was God who died on the cross for our sins. 20% of people believe that Jesus sinned while he was here on earth. And 44% of people believe that he was only a man. If Jesus was only a man, and if he sinned while he was on here on earth, and he's no different than you and me, and he could not pay the penalty of our sins. The sacrifice required someone who is pure, without blame. And because Jesus was both God and man, he did not sin. He could pay the ultimate sacrifice for the sins of the world. Jesus was saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. No one goes to the Father but through me. He's telling this religious leader, Nicodemus, and it's recorded in John chapter 3, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that everyone who believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Verse 17 said, For God did not send his Son into the world that he might condemn the world. Jesus didn't come just to let you know how bad you are. He came so that the world might be saved through him. He came to save the world. The world needs saving. What do they need saving from? Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son. If you have never accepted Jesus Christ as the Savior of your sins, you are already on the path of destruction. God is not sending you there. You're already headed that road, and God wants to save you from that path. Some people believe that Jesus was just a good teacher, but think about what Jesus is actually teaching. He is not just a prophet. 
He was able to die on the cross for the sins of the world. Well, there's a lot of doctrines and beliefs that we can talk about um, that we should be able to understand and articulate what God has to say about those. Some of them has to do with pain and suffering. Why is there pain and suffering in the world? Where is God in the midst of pain and suffering? That's what people are asking, and they're looking for some answers. The church needs to provide answers and be the hope for this world. Some of us are asking questions about angels and demons and whether we should be talking to spirits so we can communicate to our lost loved ones. What's God in the Bible say about that? Some of us need to be able to articulate what does God really say about homosexuality or marriage or divorce and the issues, the issues. We need to understand what does God really say about these things so we can give the right answers to people. Paul's saying fight the good fight of the faith. You've got to figure some of this stuff out. And so I'm also challenging you guys to think about increasing the time where you fight for the good fight of the faith. About 4% of Hope Chapel attend the Sunday morning Bible classes. That's really low. The good part is over 80% of you are involved in a life group or a women's Bible study group or a men's accountability group, and that's wonderful because in those groups, you're, you're digging deep into God's Word. You're talking about these issues. But I do kind of want to challenge you to maybe look at coming to a Sunday morning Bible class as well where we talk about those things. Unlike those other groups where you kind of have sometimes you have homework, these usually don't have homework. You just come, you learn, and, and you learn these things. And yeah, I'm doing a little bit of marketing and advertising, all right? But I'm encouraging you to come to those groups. And I know some of you say, whoa, I've got kids. You're asking me for the kids to be down in Kids Connect for two services. If I go to a class and then I come to worship, and I'm saying, I've been a children's pastor for 10 years. And I'll be honest, I've never had a kid disappointed because they had to stay for two services. They really haven't. If they're a baby or a toddler, I get that. That's difficult for them. But if they're an elementary age, they're used to being in a room for six hours a day. So they're fine being down there for a couple hours. In fact, the next service, different friends are showing up. They're like, oh, well, cool. Now you know, new friends are showing up. And even though the teachers are teaching the same material, it's a different teacher. So they have different learning styles. And, and so the kids are having a blast down there. Don't worry about them. Don't use that as an excuse. Now, I know some of you are saying, ooh, if I come to both services on a Sunday, that's like three or four hours of my day, and Sunday's my day to get stuff done. And I understand that as well. I'm just challenging you to think about the time that you're fighting for the faith. We talk about tithing our money. How about tithing our time? Let's say there's 16 waking hours of the day. You had a good night's sleep for eight hours, and now you got full 16 hours left. That's about 112 hours in a week. Let's tithe 10% to God with our time. That's about 11 hours a week. Look at your calendar. Count the time where you're spending time with God in your personal devotional quiet time, where you're focused in prayer, where you're meeting in life groups or accountability groups, whether you're serving the community, you're here on Sunday morning, you're at youth group. Count all those things. That's great. Count them up. How many hours is that? Are you coming close to 11 hours? Or do we maybe need to increase our time where we're fighting for the good fight of faith? It's just a question, just a challenge for you to think about those things. So those are the two challenges this week. How much are you really complaining? How much are you not grabbing hold of contentment and godliness? Are you fighting for the faith? Are there areas where you're really discontent and you need to be content in those areas? And are there areas where you're content and you really need to be 
discontent. Those are the challenges for us. Let's pray. God, I know that this message is a little heavy. But God, I know that you want us to know the truth. You care about us. You love us. You don't want us to go down certain paths. You want us to be filled with joy. You want us to have complete joy. You want us to understand what you had to do on the cross for our sins. And you want us to go out and tell others that they too can accept Jesus Christ, your Son, as the Savior of your sins. I gotta pray if there is anybody here who's never done that, they. Take the opportunity to do that right now. Also challenge us to really go out and to count the times and the ways that we are complaining and to take serious that we need to maybe change in our life in this area. God, help us to do that. We need your grace. We need your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.